Hey folks, I hope you find this conversation between Lisa and Ken valuable. As always, write to us with your questions and comments at letters at cafe.com. From Cafe, this is United Security. I'm Lisa Monaco. And I'm Ken Weinstein. Hey, Ken, great to be back with you. Yeah, it's great to be here. And we're here in an official full-fledged way now with our new podcast. Yep, this is our official launch episode of our new podcast, United Security. I still wish we could be doing this in the studio, but you and I are uh, in our remote locations. So one of these days, we'll get back to having that fuzzy microphone between our two heads. But, uh, But for now, it's great to be back with you, and I'm really excited to launch this. Uh, I'm excited too. And hey, being at home has its advantages, shorts and flip-flops, <laughs> a little more comfortable than the suit at the studio. Uh, but it's really, it's exciting to be be part of this effort to have a podcast, to be doing this on a bi-weekly basis and to be doing it with you. And there's a lot to talk about. First, let me just ask you, what have you been up to since we last podcasted together? Well, I've been like you, I've been juggling lots of different things, filling my days uh, in home confinement here. I'm a partner in a law firm at O'Melveny and Myers. I'm teaching at NYU. But lately, I've been spending a bunch of time on efforts, both as a member of uh, former Vice President Biden's Public Health Advisory Committee, uh, helping uh, with a few other public health and homeland security experts advise him on the coronavirus. And I'm also helping to lead the vetting process for the vice presidential nominee. How about you? What have you been up to? Well, that latter piece makes me want to ask you some good inside baseball questions, but I suspect we won't get any answers. Nope. So I won't even try. (laughs) But good for you doing that work. Sometimes it's hard to remember that this is actually an election year when it's 24-7 COVID-19 coverage, but always important to play an important part in the presidential elections. So I've also have been uh, trying to maintain my law practice, but also keep up with the dizzying parade of national security events that we've been seeing, which I think is a good lead into today because we have a few important ones to talk about today. Yeah, we've got a lot of things to break down. And what we're going to try and do now every two weeks on this podcast is break down national security issues, explain what's going on, uh, what the significance of these issues is, try and get past the polemics, get past the talking points and talk about uh, things from a fact-based perspective. Also provide some historical perspective to some of the events that we're seeing. So today, I think we've got a pretty full agenda, Ken, as far as I can tell. We want to talk about the latest reporting on this intelligence that's emerged about Russians, uh, Russia paying bounties to Taliban-linked militias to kill our service members in Afghanistan. Uh, want to talk about the latest on the Bolton book saga, and of course, the latest updates on what's going on with the coronavirus. Yep. So we got a full plate, so let's jump right into it. Why don't we start with the uh, the Russian bounties and just a quick snapshot of, of what's happened over the last few weeks. Uh, it's been publicly disclosed that intelligence was received earlier in the year that the, the Russian military intelligence was paying bounties to members of the Taliban, specifically to kill coalition forces and U.S. forces, soldiers. Bounties to be paid for the deaths of American soldiers. Uh, pretty shocking intelligence. Intelligence, in short, as reported publicly, is that there was detainee reporting. In other words, Taliban fighters who were captured, who said that bounties had been paid by the GRU, by the Russian intelligence, military intelligence, uh, and some indication that money had been transferred 
uh, from the Russian government to the Taliban. And this intelligence, at least the CIA and the National Counterterrorism Center, judged that uh, with medium confidence that these bounties were being paid. There's a difference of opinion among some of the agencies as to the strength of the evidence or the strength of the intelligence. But that's the intelligence picture that was learned earlier this year. Apparently, the NSC, National Security Council, had a meeting to talk about the intelligence and what to do, but ultimately there was no public or policy response to the Russians. Um, And then it got leaked and publicly disclosed. And since that public disclosure, the whole debate has been about whether there should have been a response and why there was no response. So that's, that's the stage that we're at right now. And I guess my first question to you is this. It sounds terrible. A foreign government, a member of the world order, actually paying money to irregular troops to ask, you know, specifically to kill soldiers of another uh, another government. How bad is that compared to the kind of back and forth efforts that different powers make to try to benefit themselves and to the detriment of other countries? Well, look, can I think, I mean, look, you and I both know we, we've uh, spent our life in government, or certainly the last decade of our lives in government, consuming intelligence, right? Being a customer of the intelligence community for reports, um, sometimes that come in and evolve over time. There's always going to be, I think, differing assessments from different members of the intelligence community. Nothing is ever 100%. So I think there's a few issues we should unpack on this. One is uh, what you just laid out, right? How significant is this? How should we be thinking about this question of paying of bounties. The question about what did the president know and when did he know it, that was the kind of the first issue that kind of consumed uh, the media on this and the public debate. And based on what is known, what should be done about it and how should the policy makers and how should the White House and the U.S. government respond to something like this? Yeah, and I, I agree. I, I mean, this, there are big issues here. I guess the first one I'm asking myself is, well, bounties sound terrible, But, you know, we have a history of providing arms to irregular troops that are fighting uh, other powers. For instance, you know, watch the movie Charlie Wilson's War. That's all about how we provided stingray missiles, the Mujahideen, that really broke the back of the Soviets when they invaded Afghanistan and resulted in the deaths of countless Russian soldiers. So we weren't paying bounties, but we were taking actions, i.e. providing arms that resulted in the death of Russian soldiers. Well, I will tell you what I told Harold Holt. I can get the money. Now, 10 million is a joke, fine. What do you need? To do what? To shoot down the helicopters, to shoot down the helicopters. We can help them shoot down the goddamn helicopters. Everything's gonna start going our way. Why is it different when the Russians reportedly offer bounties for the deaths of American soldiers. Yeah, and you, and you see you know, the Russian officials now responding to these reports, pointing exactly to what you just said, Ken, uh, to, uh, to the history of the U.S. supporting the Mujahideen. But look, from my perspective, I think bounties is, is different in kind, right? First and foremost, this is, involves um, direct, a direct impact on our service members, right? In a conflict in a place that we've been now for, for two decades and having expended untold you know, blood and treasure. And so this is a direct link by a foreign adversary against our service members. So that's point one. Point two is, I think it is an escalation that's different in kind. We know that the Russians have long, A, supported the Taliban. We know that they have also, over time, tried to undermine 
the U.S.-led coalition in Afghanistan. But I think it is a, a new escalation and also a new low in terms of their past efforts to actually provide an incentive and payment for Taliban-linked militias to go after and kill, you know, paying for those results to kill our service members. So I think it is different in kind. And it's yet another example of kind of Russia pushing the boundaries uh, in terms of what it will do uh, if unchecked. Yeah, and I totally agree with you. It is completely different in kind. And, you know, you got to remember that war is horrible and the point of war is to kill the other side before they kill you. And so it's by nature brutal. But we have rules by which we conduct war, the Geneva Conventions and the like. So this is sort of beyond the pale. And um, and it's it's shocking. And uh, I guess the question then that you're alluding to is, you know, why did Russia do it? Um, assuming the reporting is correct, uh, why would they do something that would that would possibly be publicly disclosed, and they would then be seen as doing something this horrendous. And um, I know there's been a good bit of commentary about uh, both what Russia's motivations were as a as a country, but also Putin's motivations and how he still resents our role in the fall of the Soviet Union, specifically our role helping the Mujahideen defeat them in Afghanistan, which I think led fairly directly to the fall of, of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but also his resentment of the roles we played in Ukraine and Syria, where we've been supporting forces uh, that are positioned against Russia. Um, and then also, you know, I think what you talked about, a new low. I mean, it is a new low, though there have been some pretty low lows before this. I mean, you think about them uh, poisoning the Russian spy and his daughter in the United Kingdom, in London, um, in a way that Ultimately, it was bound to be traced back to Russia. You know, they they were willing to do that. They were willing to be outed publicly for assassinating um, a Russian spy in the United Kingdom, uh, and did it nonetheless. And as as though there's almost a, a desire to be seen as being that extreme. Yeah. Look, I think the you know the Russia watchers and the Russia analysts, the experts on this, would say, uh, and have provided this analysis that. There's a, an effort to continue to push the envelope if left, if left unchecked, right? They supply the Taliban, provide financial support, have efforts to undermine our coalition in Afghanistan, and they're going to continue to push, uh, to push and push. And yes, in an effort to kind of foment discord there and keep things unstable uh, in that region. Um, so I think there's, you know, the, it's... Unsurprisingly, you know, that you and I would agree uh, that uh, having bounties on our soldiers is a, is a new low. But, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of other issues here that have kind of captivated the discussion. And this whole thing started, as you, as you said before, Ken, with a disclosure. I think the first reporting was in the New York Times about this intelligence. You know, there's some reporting that the intelligence dates back to as early as March 2019 and that it also appeared in the president's daily brief in February of this year, February of 2020. But the whole, the first couple days of this story was all about, you know, to use the old Watergate uh, phrase, what did the president know and when did he know it? And so we had a whole series of discussions about, you know, was the president briefed? I think the White House's first statement on this is that the president wasn't quote unquote briefed, but unclear what that means, you know, was he orally briefed? Did he read something in the president's daily brief? 
Should we be focusing on that, Ken? What do you think? Do you think it should matter? I mean, you used to consume this information every day. Yeah, it's a fair question. And it's the kind of question that you always get in the aftermath of some sort of bad news. And I remember back after 9-11, there had been an entry in the president's uh, daily brief, the PDB, that back in August 2001, that al-Qaeda was considering using airplanes to attack the homeland or something to that effect. And there was a, a lot of questioning after the fact as to whether the president read that, why he and his top policy, you know, his top advisors didn't do something about it. Uh, so I think it's a fair question here as well, when we're hearing about a, some pretty outrageous conduct by the Russians and no apparent response by our government to try to stop that conduct and deter Russia from doing it again in the future. And and look, the uh, PDB process, I mean, the, the whole process is designed to take the intelligence that's collected throughout the intelligence community and on a daily basis synthesize that information, get it to a point where it's, you know you prioritize the threats that are out there and then get that briefed to the president and the top-level officials within the government so that they can then make decisions about what actions should be taken to protect our national security. And if that, those briefings don't happen, then those protective measures don't take place, and then we end up being more vulnerable. And that seems to be what happened here. So I think it's a perfectly fair question to ask, did the president get briefed on this? Did he digest the importance of this? And did he and others in the White House make an affirmative decision whether to take action or not? And apparently that didn't happen. Yeah. And the other thing I think we should we should kind of break down a little bit for folks is there's been discussion and about, well, you know, this information was, quote, unverified. Some of the discussion has been, well, it wasn't 100% verified and all of that. I think folks should just know, since you and I, again, consume this information, we were recipients of the president's daily brief, information is always going to be coming from different sources. Those sources are going to have different levels of credibility attached to them. The intelligence community is going to assess with different levels of confidence. And here at the outset, uh, Ken, you mentioned that the CIA and the National Counterterrorism Center assessed with moderate confidence. We should explain for people what that means. What it means from an intelligence uh, discipline point of view is that the information that the intelligence community had was from credible sources and that the uh, community assessed it as plausible. That's, that's what it means to have moderate confidence. Now, it's not, it's not 100%, right? And it's, you're very rarely, if ever, going to have uh, the kind of smoking gun definitive proof of something. This is constantly a practice of pooling together different sources of information and providing the best expert analytical judgments to that information. Right. And we see this over and over. Um, in fact, a, an example that came up not too long ago was the intelligence community assessment into the Russian interference in the 2016 election. Uh, you know, one of the, the findings of the intelligence community assessment that was finished up in January of 2017 was that the Russians and, and Putin undertook the interference campaign specifically to help Hillary Clinton. The ODNI and the CIA and the FBI had, as I recall, high confidence that that in that finding. The NSA departed from that and said they had, I think it was medium confidence. And so that's fairly common. So it's not surprising that that happened here as well. I think that's also because these different intelligence agencies has, have different expertise. 
So the National Security Agency that you just mentioned that had moderate confidence or medium confidence, they specialize in what's called signals intelligence, right? Electronic intercepts. Whereas the CIA specializes in human intelligence, right? Uh, Information provided by uh, informants and the like. So, you know, they've got different agencies have different disciplines and different sources of expertise. So they're naturally going to assess information differently. You know, the other thing, Ken, there's been this question out there, which I think people rightly ask, well, look, do you walk into the Oval Office with unverified information? Do you bring every rumor to the president? And the, my answer to that is absolutely no, you don't do that. Every, you don't bring in every rumor. But something like this, in, in my view, in my experience, that bears on the safety of our service members in a place that we have spent a lot of time and money and effort and have significant interests with the actions of a avowed adversary of ours, absolutely, I would bring that into the president. I think it's something that he needs to know. I'd walk into the Oval Office and and say, this is what the intelligence community is telling us. But importantly, you want to also be bringing the president options to deal with that information. Yeah, and I think I just have canvassed some of the the commentary about this, and it seems like it's fairly universal among other people who served as advisors, national security advisors to presidents, that they've been saying that this is the kind of thing, given the severity of the allegation and given what it says about Russia and what Russia is willing to do, it's the kind of intelligence that would have been taken to the president. And then the question would be, as you said, what should the president do about it? And in the typical scenario... If the alarm bells had been rung and the um, National Security Council interagency process had gotten cranked up, and apparently there was one meeting, but that didn't result in any any policy output. But if that had happened, uh, you would typically have a lower-level meeting within the National Security Council to look at the various options and literally go through a checklist of here are the things we can do that would have the objective effect and objective of stopping this conduct, condemning this conduct, and deterring this conduct in the future. And those are the sort of the different sub-objectives of whatever uh, response, policy response that you'd come up with. Those would be refined with input from all parts of the government, from the defense side, and obviously they have a strong equity in this because it's their people who are targeted by these bounties, from State Department who would look at the whatever options there are from a diplomatic perspective, and balance the interests of maintaining diplomacy against sending a strong message. And all parts of the government, when we would then formulate a set of options which would then be presented to the president, and the president would then decide which of those options to pursue. And in terms of options, well, you can lay out some of them, from sanctions to uh, PNG diplomats to, you know, going back on the effort to try to let Russia rejoin the G7. Yeah, so the, you're quite right, Ken. You'd, you'd present a range of options to the president from what's called a diplomatic demarche, right? So that's diplomacy speak for sending a stern message, having our diplomats go to their counterparts and, and say, you know, this is what we understand uh, to be happening and it needs to stop and we understand what's what's going on. So letting, letting them know that you know to efforts to respond and deter Things like not inviting the Russians to an upcoming summit, right? So there's there's been a lot of reporting about the fact that President Trump had uh, a number of phone calls with President Putin 
in between the time that this intelligence came in and uh, when it became publicly known. And in those series of phone calls, he talked about inviting President Putin to the United States, inviting them back uh, to the G7. You know, these are all things that are carrots, if you will. They're olive branches. They are rewards on the world stage uh, from one leader to another. And so one of the many reasons why you'd want to be briefing the president and have him aware of this very concerning intelligence is so that in those discussions, you take it into account and you know you don't extend rewards or positive steps at, at a time when uh, you've got this very concerning intelligence about what Russia is doing. Yeah, no, I think, think you're right. And that's why this issue has some legs and probably some staying power, because what you have is you have carrots being offered at a time that you know, a stick was really called for. Um, and there were a number of sticks that could have been used, as I mentioned, you know, that could have gone back on the president's offer to you know, readmit Russia into the G7. Um, he could have you know, said that we're rethinking the reduction of U.S. forces in Germany, could have talked about upping sanctions against Russia, as we've done in the past. You know, we could have uh, talked about increasing our military assistance to Ukraine in their confrontation with Russia. So there are a number of things that could have been done, which would have been more consistent with the kind of message that was called for. Yeah, because those are all things that are going to bite Russia, right? They're not going to they're not going to like that. And that's what they listen to. Right. Ex yeah, exactly. Putin only responds to forceful measures. Uh, we're not going to talk him into being a nice guy. So I guess then I guess the last question about this is, um, what is the what is the cost of inaction here? What is it that we can expect to come about from the fact that that Putin has apparently done this outrageous thing, offered bounties for the deaths of American soldiers, and got nothing but silence in response? Well, look, first and most importantly, it continues to put our service members at risk, right? Uh, if left unchecked, that's obviously the most important thing, and it continues to send a signal that there aren't going to be costs for learning about this and uh, there, there won't be deterrent measures taken. I mean, one of the other things, as, a, as I think we talk about this, Ken, that we could do and is something I think we, should, we would consider is working with our allies and partners to respond. In other words, you know, is there a way that we would go out and explain to our allies and partners, particularly those who are in the coalition in Afghanistan working with us, to say, here's the intelligence we have. This is the picture that we're seeing. Work with us to isolate Russia, to impose sanctions. You know, so we get some of our partners also on board who, of course, have a stake uh, in making sure that this isn't going on uh, in Afghanistan. So all of those things are measures I think we, we could and should be considering. Yep. And it's um, in any bilateral relationship with any uh, foreign government, but in particular when it comes to Russia, uh, it's critical to, um, you know, to, to make sure that when they step over the line that they get smacked back. And that apparently didn't happen here. Apparently didn't happen, uh, doesn't seem to have happened at least forcefully enough in response to the Russia interference with the 2016 election. And as a result, the fear is that this kind of conduct is only going to continue 
and maybe even get worse in the future. Yeah, no, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, I know this debate all too well, right? There was a lots of, uh, there's been criticism of how uh, the Obama administration handled the Russian attack on our election and, you know, did the United States respond forcefully enough, soon enough? Uh, and that's, that's a debate that continues to this day, but, you know, it was never considered appropriate to do nothing. You can argue about the timing, you can argue about the degree, but uh, to not respond at all when Russia bears its teeth in this way, and particularly when it involves the lives of service members, that's when we absolutely uh, need to be formulating response options uh, and acting on those, and hopefully acting with our partners. So look, I think there's going to be a lot more uh, to come on this issue. Congress has now been briefed, although in a kind of departure from the norm, the White House summoned separately Democratic members and, and Republican members to the White House to receive briefings. And there have been uh, questions about you know, whether the intelligence community was sufficiently involved in those briefings. But I'm very confident that the intelligence committees, the armed services committees, will get the experts up to the Hill to give them classified briefings about what more we know about this. So we're going we're gonna to hear more uh, on this story as it develops, and we'll be talking about it. So, Ken, I think we've got a little bit of a world's colliding situation here, which is, you know, there's been some reporting that the intelligence on this Russian bounties issue dates back to March 2019, when, of course, uh, John Bolton was still the national security advisor, and he's been somebody very much uh, in the news these days. I think you'd be living under a rock if you hadn't heard. He's got a book out called The Room Where It Happened. I'm guessing that the folks at Hamilton and the uh, musical there have a, have a view on that title. But, you know, there have been lots of revelations uh, that have come out about that book, lots of you know, interesting tidbits about uh, Bolton's observations while he's been in, in the White House. But I think there's two particularly interesting issues around this uh, controversy over the publication of this book. To my mind, the issues really boil down to uh, the unusual example uh, he's setting of being the national security advisor, penning a book uh, about the president who appointed him while that president is still in office. And then, of course, the controversy around the whole process of reviewing that book before it gets published. And we now know that the government is, has tried to stop unsuccessfully his publication of that book. Um, but, you know, people are learning more and more about what used to be kind of a dorky and uh, Byzantine process called the pre-publication review process that only people like you and me really had to worry about. But now a lot more people have learned about it. And since you and I both are subject to it, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit, Ken, about what is the pre-publication review process. Yeah, this is a fascinating controversy with a whole sort of nest of issues. And it, uh, it once again goes back to John Bolton. He was a, he's a longtime foreign policy expert. He's been around D.C. for decades. He became the national security advisor for President Trump. Uh, they worked together for a while, and then he left on bad terms, got crosswise with the president. He then popped up again in the context of the impeachment proceeding where there was some talk about him possibly testifying as to whether there was a quid pro quo between the president releasing aid to the Ukraine in return for the Ukraine conducting an investigation that might result in digging up 
hopeful dirt on Vice President Biden. Bolton ended up not testifying during the impeachment proceeding, but now he is uh, has published his book. And the uh, the question that's been raised is you broke it down appropriately into sort of two questions. One is kind of a, an ethical, moral decision as to whether this kind of book is appropriate by somebody, you know, a high-level advisor to the president. And then a question of whether uh, what he's done by releasing this book is legal. So starting with the first, look, I think there's a, a real question here. And I think that w- there's been some interesting dialogue among people who have served in these kind of positions like you and I have as to whether it's really not putting aside legal, whether it's right to for somebody to be an advisor to the president and turn right around and then do a kiss and tell book. And there are very real life concerns there. Um, you know, we, we want presidents to be able to ruminate and speak their mind and think through all options behind closed doors with their advisors and not worry that six months later, they're, you know, they're ill-formed or um, sort of nascent thoughts about an issue might be chronicled and out there for the whole world to see. Um, so, you know, there are, real, there are concerns that these kind of kiss-and-tell books can chill the very vital kind of deliberative process that we want presidents to go through when they're dealing with crises and, and critical issues like this. Well, I was just going to say, Ken, I, th- I think it's a valid question, you know, and, and criticism. The one thing I think may have been a bit overdone is, you know, people have said, oh, it's unprecedented for somebody to, to you know, to write who've held the position that he did and that type of position to write this book while the president's still in office. You know, I went back and looked at this because that didn't sound right to me. Uh, I remember uh, Bob Gates former Secretary of Defense who served six presidents. Um, and his the last president he served was President Obama, who kind of famously asked him to stay on after the Bush administration as Secretary of Defense. He published a book in 2015, when, of course, the last president he served, Obama, was still in office. And Leon Panetta published a memoir in 2014. He also, of course, uh, served both as President Obama's Secretary of Defense and as uh, Director of the CIA. So I think there's plenty of precedent for people to go out and write books about the presidents that they served under while that president is still in office. I think there's a, there's a slightly different thing at issue here, which is those other books that I mentioned are kind of broad memoirs about their government service. And uh, this Bolton book is very pointed, very specifically uh, about the, the Trump presidency, he, he, he calls in the book Trump stunningly uninformed. I think that's a, that's a quote that's gotten a lot, of, uh, a lot of attention. So while I don't think it's completely unprecedented uh, for this to happen, this book does seem to be different in kind in its focus and its very, very pointed and uh, tough, tough criticism of the president that he served under. Right. But then, so no matter whether you like that or not, you agree with the kiss and tell book or not, you know, our First Amendment uh, protects one's ability uh, and right to speak about our own experiences and that they cannot be censored absent uh, concerns about classified information and and other privileges. But in this case, um, we're now in litigation and or the government is in litigation with Bolton because they contend that Bolton did not go through uh, what you call the dorky process of pre, the pre-publication review, which it is dorky, but it's actually really important. That grows out of 
the uh, a process that has developed over the last few decades where people who take on these jobs that require clearances in the government, as you and I did, agree at the outset in writing that we will obviously protect classified information. And if we write after our, or either during or after our departure from government position about matters that might be classified, that we'll submit those writings to whatever agency we belong to for that agency to review those writings to ensure that there's nothing classified in them. And, you know, so memoirs, editorials, this kind of thing, all have to be submitted to the agency where a former government official who has a clearance used to work, and that agency has to to sign off. In this case, Bolton did exactly that, submitted his manuscript to the National Security Council, the, the career person who does the reviews. That person and her staff reviewed his lengthy manuscript, and there was a multi-month effort or process of going back and forth to, to sanitize the book of classified information. And ultimately, um, he never, uh, even though he believed the process was done, according to his lawyer's uh, account, um, he never got a final letter from the NSC saying that that the manuscript was free of all classified information and could be published. And he and his publisher went ahead and announced a publication date at the end of the end of June. The government, hearing that, then filed a lawsuit, um, both to prevent him from publishing on the twenty third as scheduled, but also to say that uh, if he does publish, then any revenue from the publication of that book would be sequestered and go to the government. And that's an interesting remedy, but it's actually one that's in the law that says that if a former government official violates their agreement to go through the pre-publication review process before publishing anything, then the government then has the right to take all their proceeds, obviously designed to deter people from circumventing the pre-publication review process. Yeah, and um, I don't know about you, Ken, but I remember both the first time I signed all those documents, right? to signing up to this commitment, um, along with getting your security clearance. And I also remember and have experience submitting several things, never a book, but several op-eds for the pre-publication review process. I mean, so we should just kind of break that down for people. I mean, when you get a security clearance, one of the things you sign up to is this commitment, right? You sign a non-disclosure agreement. You tell the government that you are obviously not going to disclose classified information to those who don't have both a need to know and have a security clearance themselves. Uh, And you sign up to this commitment that you're going to submit anything that you write in the future, touching on your experience and and that could potentially have classified information in it. You you agree that you're going to submit that uh, to the government. And I remember the first time I did this, Um, I remember going into a SCIF, right, what's called a Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. Uh, At this time, it was in the Justice Department. Um, And I remember signing a whole host of of documents. I liken it to, you know, when you're closing on a house, you're constantly signing, you know, dozens of different pieces of paper. I remember signing kind of on the dotted line, and I was signing up to uh, to this commitment. And it is something that you agree to. It's a basically a contract, right? That uh, because of the privilege to receive this classified information and get the security clearance, you're going to uh, agree not to disclose it. And 
this, the process, though, I think has sometimes suffered, both on the one hand, of course, overclassification is a big problem. You and I have, have seen that in practice. But this, what this whole Bolton episode has exposed is sometimes um, the, the lack of uniformity around some of the processes. Uh, so the whole issue with Bolton, uh, as I understand it, looking at this litigation, is he did go through the process, but he didn't ultimately get that piece of paper or that final piece of writing to tell him he was done with the process and he was clear. Uh, and that that's what the whole debate has, is now kind of, uh, uh, kind of turning on. Yeah, and that's exactly it. He didn't get sort of the final green light. And the government is sort of harking back to this process that's been in place. Um, in fact, dates back to, uh, I guess, the 1970s. There's a famous case involving a CIA officer named Frank Snepp, who was with the CIA working in Vietnam. He, uh, after his experience in Vietnam, where he saw what he thought was, you know, gross incompetence by the CIA and various shenanigans that were unsavory, he wrote a book. And he initially agreed to, he actually agreed with the director of the CIA to go through pre-publication review. And then after he wrote the book, he opted not to, and he went ahead and published. And the, um, the government sued, and they got the proceeds of his book, and the Supreme Court upheld that remedy and found that that was appropriate, that he'd entered into a contract. Boy, Ken, you're really out-nerding me uh, with this reference to the, to the SNEP case, right? It was, I think it was a 1980 Supreme Court ruling. And I think as this issue got discussed later, SNEP himself has been known to have reflected on this issue uh, in subsequent media interviews. My personal experience with the CIA was uh, a lawsuit. The U.S. government sued me for publishing decent interval without the CIA's approval, even though uh, nobody ever accused me of publishing any secrets in the book. Uh, the lawsuit uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court came down with a decision which is historic in its implications. Uh, the Supreme Court decided that every government worker in a position of trust, whether in the CIA, State Department, National Security Council, has an implicit obligation to submit what he says or writes about his work to the government for censorship. If he doesn't, he is liable to monetary penalties, the forfeiture of all of his profits, and all of the profits from decent interval, uh, my profits were forfeited to the government, and he is subject to, to a lifelong gag order, which means that he must continue to submit his statements to the government for approval. Again, even if there are no secrets involved. And even if he has signed no secrecy agreement with the government, this involves an implicit obligation. One of the victims of the, of the Vietnam War was, was the First Amendment, and my case was one of the, the cases that came out of the Vietnam War. Just like John Bolton and like you and me and everybody else who serves in those positions, that's a binding contract that follows us even after we leave government service. And the question here is, uh, in this litigation, is whether even you know, even though he went, he started on the process, whether he completed the process and um, therefore had was entitled to go forward, and right, you know, the government has basically asked the court to issue a preliminary injunction to enjoin the publication of the book, but the judge had a hearing and then decided that 
you know, it was the, as he said, the horse was the horse was already out of the barn, and there was no way to stop the publication. Books had already been prepositioned all around the world for distribution, so it was a done deal. Um, but the litigation seeking the proceeds of the book is still going forward, and so we'll be able to monitor that as it goes forward, and that'll end up dissecting the pre-publication review process in this case. And you know, I think it'll be, there'll be a good bit of discussion about the balancing between. First Amendment right to to tell your experiences, to to share your insights about the highest levels of government, which of course is a critical piece of our democracy. That transparency is is key against the government's legitimate need to protect secrets and to bind people to keep those secrets if they're going to be entrusted with these high level positions in government. Hey, just a, just an aside here, Ken. I mean, I don't know what what you thought about that, but. When I read that uh, piece in the opinion from Judge Lambert, who you, who you and I uh, know a little bit, where he said the horse is out of the barn in this litigation already, uh, I, I heard his Texas roots coming through uh, in, that, uh, in, in that opinion. I don't know if that was your reaction. Oh, he's a Texas man through and through, and he also knows about what he ruled on here. I mean, he's got deep experience with intelligence matters. He was the chief judge of the FISA court. Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and has worked and been in the national security trenches for decades. And so he knows this area. Well, that and that also came through when he said, as, as you rightly laid out, Ken, he acknowledged kind of the practical reality, right? The horse is out of the barn. The, the, the book had been published. It was already distributed. There's no getting that back. But he also uh, had some stern words in that opinion for, uh, for John Bolton. He said that he thought he had, quote, gambled uh, with U.S. national security by uh, pursuing the process the way he did. So, you know, not an entire win uh, here for Bolton in, in large measure, yes, uh, in terms of that opinion, but definitely some stern words uh, from Judge Lambert in some of that opinion. Well, it'll be interesting to monitor how the litigation goes, and it'll be sort of part of the ongoing calibration between protection of government secrets and First Amendment that plays out in many ways and will probably continue to play out as I'm sure we're going to see more kiss and tell books in the future. Let's move on to another topic that's in the headlines and uh, justifiably so, and that's where we are on COVID-19. I think last time we podcasted, Lisa, there was uh, there might well have been some hope that there was going to be a flattening of the curve and sort of a, a diminution of new cases. It looks like that hasn't come to pass. And instead, we're seeing spikes all over the United States and in some ways even more troubling, seeing that we're way outpacing most of the rest of the world in new cases and sadly in, uh, in new deaths from COVID-19. So I guess my question to you, uh, harking back to you know your experience dealing with Ebola and um, just your observations since covid came to our shores earlier this year. Uh, why do you think we're seeing this uptick in new cases? It makes sense to, to talk about this now because it continues uh, to be very much uh, with us. Quite obviously, we're, we're surpassing 3 million cases in the United States and uh, over 130,000 deaths. Uh, and it's just continues to be uh, incredibly sobering numbers that we're confronting. And as you said, we're experiencing a surge yet again. There's been lots of debate, as I'm sure you've been following, Ken, that, oh, are we in a second wave? Well, as Tony Fauci has recently said, we are still knee-deep in the first wave. We are still knee-deep in the first wave of this. And I would say this would not be considered a wave. It was a, a surge 
or a resurgence of infections mm -hmm. superimposed upon a baseline, Francis, that really never got down to where we wanted to go. And we're hitting, you know, we're seeing daily records uh, for new cases. I think uh, I checked this morning up 72%. And of course, Florida, Texas, Arizona are now hitting daily, daily records in their new cases. You know, so why are we experiencing or having such a different experience uh, than other countries? I think it boils down to a few things. One is we have not had really, I think it's fair to say, a national strategy. We've had a kind of a patchwork approach with some uh, guidelines being issued by the federal government and, and certainly some resources being provided, although I think there's a fair argument to be made that it has absolutely not been sufficient. We've talked before, Ken, about uh, the failure to fully embrace and fully activate the Defense Production Act, the failures in testing starting at the very beginning of all this, and uh, that proving to continue to be a problem. But at the end of the day, it's been kind of a philosophical approach, I think, um, that this is going to be kind of, quote, left to the states. And so as a consequence, we've seen a very piecemeal and patchwork approach. And what we're seeing now, I believe, is a result of that patchwork approach. So really, the states that moved quickly and aggressively and shut down early and moved off of those restrictions in a uh, gradual way driven by very specific metrics, those states, by and large, are keeping a handle on new cases and a surge in new cases. In contrast, those states that uh, delayed shutting down, delayed putting in place mitigation measures, and then moved very rapidly and quickly to move off of any restrictions that were put in place and to, quote, reopen and took this as kind of a light switch approach as opposed to a gradual approach, those are the places that by and large are seeing the surges that we're, that we're seeing now. So I think it comes down to not having a national strategy and not having very clear, consistent messaging on the things that we as a citizenry need to be doing and unfortunately, having these issues that really should be public health areas of consensus, things like wearing a mask, having those now just become culture war items, right? And becoming very polarized. Yeah, and that's actually the thing that's been, frankly, surprising for me. And look, I'm, I'm as cynical and realistic about our polarized, the polarized time that we're living in. But look, in the past, public health issues have not or, or, or natural disasters have not been politicized, at least not when you're going through them. Um, and it's, you know, you can see that uh, PEPFAR, the uh, President Bush's effort against AIDS in Africa and, and dealing with malaria, these are issues that there's been generally bipartisan support. Here, however, it seems like everything's looked at through the lens of politics. And so you now have what is a public health and scientific issue being dealt with politically. And, and, it, and if you look around the world, you know, you pointed out where the hotspots are and how they correspond to states that did or didn't take the necessary measures or show enough discipline. We're seeing that with other governments, other countries, the South Koreas of the world that really were disciplined about this. They're dealing with the, the COVID-19 very effectively. But in these countries, you're not seeing the debate about what measures should be taken 
that seeing them play that debate play out politically. There's a balancing, no question, but it's not along political lines. And here we've seen that. We've sort of automatically shifted from a discussion of of what makes most sense. And there's a legitimate debate to be had about, you know, how much risk we should take on in order to open up the economy to a certain amount. I mean, there's, there's a balance there and everybody can have their views about it. But for some reason, that's now shifted in the, into political terrain. And therefore, you have people taking positions for political reasons that might not actually be uh, the best for public health. And I think that's what's distinguishing us from other countries around the world that are handling this much better. Yeah, look, I think you can boil it down to the following. Where the action has come early, it's been aggressive and has been driven by science and public health expertise, I think you've seen uh, better results than those places where the interventions were late, they were halting, and they have resulted in kind of a polarized and politicized uh, approach. I think that's the those are the fault lines, really, that, that we're dealing with. But, you know, one thing I, I think we should just mention, Ken, is the news that is just in the last day or so that the United States is now making good on its previous pledge to pull out of the World Health Organization. And, you know, that is, that's a big deal, uh, in my view, as somebody who worked on the Ebola epidemic when I was in the Homeland Security Advisor role for President Obama, and we were dealing with Ebola. There's lots to be said about some of the failings of the World Health Organization, but uh, to have the United States pulling out of it at a time in the middle of this global pandemic, um, that's it's a, a move that is being met with pretty widespread uh, derision. And it's, it's really concerning when you, when you think about, uh, you know, I've likened it to pulling the fire hose out uh, from, the, from the hands of the firemen in the middle of the fire. Right. And, and I agree. I think everybody recognizes that maybe the WHO didn't handle things perfectly throughout. And there were some missteps, especially early on, especially its willingness to accept the explanations it was receiving from China earlier on in the pandemic. No question. But it is the organization that we have. It's the organization we've had for decades that has played a vital role in dealing with international public health issues. And in the middle of this pandemic, we don't want to be distancing ourselves from the rest of the world and their public health efforts. It also raises the larger question about, you know, our decision in a number of ways to scale back our involvement in multinational organizations, which I think is unfortunate. I, I, I think there's much room for reform, whether it's our role in NATO, the respective burdens that are borne by different countries in, in NATO or the WHO or any of these multinational organizations. But I think the first effort when we see a problem like that should be to reform the, this situation, reform the organization, fix the situation, not withdraw. I think uh, ultimately that's the, that isn't what we've done since, two, uh, since World War II, and our involvement in these organizations has really added to our national security in fundamental ways. Yeah, I mean, we should just mention, I mean, I totally agree with you that the, there's plenty of work to do, uh, and there's, a, there's fair criticism to be had about how the WHO, the World Health Organization, has handled the coronavirus pandemic. It was slow, uh, I think, to respond uh, on Ebola. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is a international organization. It's a 
created, I think, in 1948, uh, if I'm not mistaken, at, at the at the UN. And it does have uh, a track record of really making a difference, most notably uh, in eradicating smallpox between 1958 and 1978, I believe. Uh, they, The WHO is largely credited with creating a campaign to eradicate smallpox. First time uh, something like that w- was done. So I think it's, it's really worth having the United States involved and using its influence, using its uh, funding, using its uh, power to influence and improve and reform an organization that needs it, not, not walking away and being on the outside looking in. So much more to come, sadly, um, about this pandemic. It's not going away anytime soon. And I think we need to be looking at what's been done in the past and then what we're hopefully building toward for the future, because this is not the last pandemic that we're going to deal with. So we'll keep monitoring the situation. You know, Ken, before we go, I know we're, we're running out of time here. I know something that you and I both really want to do on this podcast is try and highlight the people and the functions in national security um, that sometimes don't get the attention that they deserve, and particularly in a world that is constantly responding to shifting headlines and, and uh, tweets and pop-ups on, uh, news pop-ups on your phone, uh, I think it's, it's important to highlight and do, frankly, a, a bit of a shout-out to the roles in uh, national security that are working and the people who are working to keep us safe uh, and doing so sometimes under, under considerable strain. Uh, my nominee for, for our first um, uh, shout-out, if you will, of uh, calling out a what I would call unsung heroes in the national security uh, apparatus. I would, and we, we mentioned this uh, earlier in the podcast, the function of the president's daily brief. I think we should uh, recognize the staff that puts that briefing together, that puts that product together, not just for the president, but for uh, the national security advisor, the homeland security advisor, the role that you and I had, as well as a host of other national security officials across the government. Uh, and they do it uh, 24-7 and are working overnight, literally overnight, to, to put that intelligence product together. And these are people who aren't getting headlines and aren't getting attention, uh, at least not usually. Uh, and I think it's worth uh, acknowledging the work that they do. Yeah, and I think just the general uh, idea of doing this on a regular basis every time we have a podcast is important because the government is full of unsung heroes people that we take for granted who do exceptional work um, and sacrifice a lot. And because it's just they're civil servants, they don't go out and tout what they do. Uh, the rest of the government doesn't tout what they do. And so they're, they, unfortunately, those contributions are often overlooked. So I love doing that. And I can't think of a, a better first candidate than the PDB staff, just to keep in mind what they do. I mean, every day they run an incredible process that gets the intelligence from all over the intelligence community, collected from all over the world through all different types of collection, human intelligence, signals intelligence, everything under the sun, it all gets brought in and synthesized. It then gets distilled down into a briefing document, a concise briefing document that lays out the highest priority threats, the most important intelligence, and is laid out in a concise, informative way 
that very busy policymakers like the president and the Homeland Security Advisor, National Security Advisor, and heads of agencies can digest and understand the policy implications of that intelligence. And that's done in a 24-hour cycle every day, and it's you know done overnight because that's when it's all collected and it's produced first thing in the morning to be read by the, the consumers. And it's an incredible exercise. It's an amazing enterprise. And the fact that it's done uh, and done so well, and you and I can both speak to that, having uh, been a consumer of that intelligence document for many years, um, it's a real testament to the quality and caliber of the people on that PDB staff. So shout out to them. Yeah. And I'd just like to, hopefully they're listening, but the intelligence briefers I had assigned to me over my many years of service, uh, just like to thank them for the work that they did. And uh, the fact that they greeted me with a smile every morning when they handed me that book or that tablet later on, which didn't always have good news, very rarely had good news, but uh, they were always exceptionally professional, capable in answering questions uh, and following up. So thank you to my intelligence briefers over the years. Well, that's all the time we have for today, Ken. I know we'll be back in two weeks. Yep. And in the meantime, just remind our listeners, please send us any questions that you might have to letters at cafe.com. And we'll do our very best to answer them in the next episode. Till next time. That's it for this week's United Security Podcast. Your hosts are Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein. The executive producer is Tamara Seppa. The editorial producer is Jennifer Indig. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. The associate producer is David Kurlander. And the CAFE team is David Tadashur, Matthew Billy, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Allison Layton Brown. Thank you for being part of the Cafe Insider community. I hope you found Lisa and Ken's conversation informative. Lisa and Ken will continue to break down politically charged national security news making the headlines, and we hope you will follow along. Try the Cafe Insider membership now free for two weeks. To join, head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. To all our insiders, Thank you for supporting our work.